Good morning. Our readings this morning are Genesis chapter 45, and I'm reading from verses 1 to 15. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before his attendants, and he cried out, Here, everyone leave me, leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself to his no himself made to his brothers, and he wept out loudly as the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph, it's my, is my father still living? And when his brothers were not able to answer him, because they were terrified in his presence, then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When you have done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. Now don't be distressed. And do not be angry with yourself from selling me, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been a famine in land, and for the next five years there will be no ploughing or reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve you as a remnant on earth, and to save the lives of great, with great deliverance. So then, it is not you who sent me here, but God. And he made the, me the father to Pharaoh, the lord of his entire household, and ruler of Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, This is what your son Joseph said. God made me lord over all Egypt. Come down to and don't delay, and you will live in the region of Goshen and be near me, you and your children and your grandchildren, your flocks and herds, and all you have, and I will provide for you there, because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong will become desolate. And you can see for yourselves, and so that my brother, ben- and so can my brother Benjamin, that it's really I who am speaking to you. Tell my father about all the honour accorded to me in Egypt, and now everything you have seen, and bring my father down quickly. Then he threw his arms round his brother Benjamin and wept. And Benjamin embraced him weeping. And he kissed his brothers and wept over them. And afterwards his brothers talked to him. Now we're going to have a look at Psalm 22. It's a beautiful psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry out by day. But you do not answer by night and am silent. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In your fathers put their trust. They trusted and and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they have trusted and were not disappointed. Let's pray as we turn to the word of God. King of kings, Lord of lords and yet man of sorrows. We pray that as we open up uh, your word this morning, that your spirit might be revealing yourself to us, how it is that you would have us to live and walk and cry in this broken and fallen world that we live. That we might better glorify Jesus and make much of him when life is good and that we might better walk and press close to you when life is hard and when tears are empty. Amen. About seven 
or eight years ago now, I um, uh, went to a large Pentecostal church in Sydney for the first Sunday of the year. I had some time in between churches, and so I thought I I would go to this church and see what it was like. And um, there... uh, it was the first Sunday of the year, so there were there were literally thousands of people there. I'm guessing kind of New Year's resolutions. And as I was sitting there, the preacher got up and he stood up and he said, um, "Some of you in this room have had incredibly difficult years. That last year were years where was a year where it was filled with sorrow." The last year was a year that uh, your mother got sick. That job was, uh, that work was tiresome and exhausting. And he said, if if that's you, I I want you to stand up right now. And so uh, I kind of looked across this massive space and hundreds of people kind of stood up. And this preacher, he, he said, um, God is telling me that he's got a message for you. And he said, God really wants me to tell you that this year is going to be different. That this year for you is going to be filled with great victories and significant happiness. And and I remember just sitting in my seat at... just feeling kind of this tension and turmoil in me, like I felt just probably the most angry that I've actually ever been. Like I just remember feeling this kind of white, hot, do I stand up kind of really kind of, I almost was like, do I, like I was on the edge of my seat kind of, you know, holding kind of these cinema kind of armrests kind of going, do I stand up here and call out amongst thousands of people? Because here is what I know. I know that hundreds of people are standing up and I know that for some of these people, this year was going to be far, far worse than the year before. I've done pastoral ministry. I know that for some of these people, Their mum got sick last year, but she will die this year. I know that for some of these people, their marriages are going to fall apart. They won't be married by the end of the year. I remember thinking that some of these people will have miscarriages, some of these people that their bodies will fail them, some of these people will be in car crashes that they will never recover from. And in those moments, they are going to be thinking, what's going on? God said that this year was going to be a better year for me. And I just remember feeling legitimate anger, thinking, God never promised that. This kind of jerk on a stage promised you that, not God. Because it's so, uh, it's so just foreign to what the Bible says and to what life is really like. 
One of the beautiful things about the Bible is that it is unapologetically real about the hardships of life. That it is just, it doesn't dress it up, it doesn't romanticize it. The, the, the Bible is just so real that, that life sometimes is, life's just hard sometimes. That, that marriage is difficult, that family relationships are, are tough. That disease and famine are very real, debilitating things. That we live in a world with great joys, but terrible tears. And lonely nights. That sometimes marriage, that for better and worse, sometimes means worse. And that, in reality, that we have very little control over most things in our life. Don't we? I was catching up yesterday with a friend who was uh, uh, married at 20 years old to one of my best mates. Four weeks after their wedding, motorbike accident, he died. We're chatting around the table, sharing stories, and one of my other friends that's there opens up about how his mother just doesn't recognise him anymore. That she's kind of slipping more and more to dementia. He's feeling like he's saying a thousand goodbyes to her. And yet... In the scriptures we find so much about tears and sorrow and lament. But this morning we're going to kind of find three things. We're going to see a glimmer of hope. We're going to find a place to cry. And we're going to find a companion in the darkness. A glimmer, firstly a glimmer of hope. If you've been following in Genesis, you have seen the devastation that kind of comes through human sinfulness and selfishness, that sometimes the hardest thing about life is people. And we've seen recently the devastation and the brokenness and the tension uh, that happens over years and years. Why? Because of the sinfulness and selfishness of Joseph's brothers and the favoritism of their father. And in today's passage, we see a glimmer of hope. We see some form of kind of restoration despite the broken history. In Psalm 22, I wonder whether you picked it, where in in verse 3 he says, in you our ancestors put their trust and, and you delivered them. Kind of this calling back to these these moments, these times, these stories where 
despite the sorrows, despite the anguish, despite the brokenness and the tears, you delivered them. And Joseph's brothers, when they are put to the test and history is in danger of repeating itself, Judah steps forward. That Joseph's brothers don't fail in the same way that they did 13 years previously. That Judah, instead of selling his brother out, says, I'll take his place. And Joseph, being overwhelmed by his uh, the love that he has for his brothers, Joseph Verse 1 says that he can no longer control himself and he sends his attendants out and then he reveals himself to his brothers and he weeps so loudly that the Egyptians can hear him from rooms away and Pharaoh's household hear about it. Notice kind of the depth of the, the emotion that Joseph has, right? This is kind of just such a, a pressure cooker of emotions that is kind of being released that Joseph can no longer kind of keep this contained. On multiple other occasions, Joseph has kind of been near breaking point and then kind of leaves before his brothers can see the anguish and sorrow, the tears. But Joseph finally can contain himself no longer and he says, I am Joseph. Come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed. Do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Imagine imagine for a moment you are one of Joseph's brothers and this kind of crazy moment happens. For years you have seen the effect that your sinfulness and your selfishness, for years you've seen the effect it has on your father. Imagine all those years living and thinking and the guilt eating away at you as you remember your father's face fall when you tell him that his brother that his son Joseph has died imagine being one of Joseph's brothers and for forever having etched into your memory your father's face when he sees his son's robe dripping blood And he knows that something has gone terribly wrong. And for for years you've seen your father kind of deteriorating. The loss of appetite. Like, I, I know families who have lost children and it's something you never move on from. You never move on from. And these brothers have been living in this house knowing we 
We did this. We are responsible for this. And here, Joseph reveals himself and in what is just kind of uh, just unimaginable, he says, do not even be distressed with yourselves for what you've done. Such is kind of the peace and forgiveness and reconciliation that Joseph is offering his brothers that he's saying, don't even kind of be distressed yourself. Why? Because Joseph has this picture of God's sovereignty in suffering and in sin that he says, why? Because... For year, for two years now, there has been famine in the land. For the next five years, there'll be no playing or reaping. But God sent me ahead of you. You sold me into Egypt. But God was sending me ahead of you. Why? To preserve for you a remnant on earth. And to save your lives by a great deliverance. That God has been, Joseph is saying to his brothers, that God has been using even your your worst, most sinful, most selfish, kind of unforgivable moments, moment in history, to bring about your own deliverance, your own salvation. That the worst thing you've ever done, that God is has brought good out of it. And salvation for others. There's a, a great line that, that hits me every time in the, the, the song Jerusalem by City of Light. It goes like this. See the king who made the sun. And the moon and shining stars, let the soldiers hold and nail him down so that he could save them. See the king who made the sun, the moon and shining stars, let the soldiers hold and nail him down so that he could save them. That God is bringing and working all things, even the terrible and the ugly and the hardest and the messiest of things. Why? For your good and for our salvation. And you can hear countless stories of this if you chat to each other here. You can go online onto our website, and I hope you don't mind this, Sarah. You can check out Sarah's story, Sarah sharing her story there. One of the things she says is like, in this messiness, in this brokenness, as sin is just rife and rampant, I can see, looking back, how God was at work bringing, so that he might bring me to himself. 
we see a glimmer of hope in the goodness of God. That he can bring good even out of tragedy, even out of darkness. But more than that, the scriptures do more than that. They give us a place to cry. Excuse me. The Psalms really, the scriptures, the Psalms give us a a third gospel way to kind of deal with our emotions, deal with our griefs and our sorrows and our laments. You know, if you are part of an older generation, perhaps you have a greater tendency to kind of pretend like emotions just don't exist. Right? That there is a, that, uh, that religion or kind of more religious people and people typically from an older generation tend to want to deny the, the power or the depth or the darkness of their feelings. To kind of shove them away, to kind of stifle them or to throw them overboard. But kind of almost like as the pendulum swings in life, uh, younger people and uh, people kind of my generation and younger, (laughs) isn't it funny how you kind of always go, my generation and younger are younger people. Older than me are older people. (laughs) Right. The secular world and people tend in this, in our younger generations tend to have the opposite view of not you stuff your emotions away, but you vent them and express them, almost as if to embrace your emotions is a good in and of itself. That to discover and express them is the ultimate good, and there is a way in which it's almost like you bow down to your emotions. Well, that's my feelings, and I have to be true to myself. And whereas one tends to throw feelings overboard and the other tends to kind of hand feelings the tiller, whereas one tends to stuff them or bow to them, the other tends to, uh, tends to, um, be under aware. And neither being under aware of our emotions nor overawed by our emotions actually does us any good. In fact, both are dangerous. And what the Psalms do is they give us a third gospel way. See, the Psalms say neither deny your emotions nor vent your emotions. Instead, what the Psalms say is pray your emotions. Pray your tears. To kind of Take them and unpack them and lay them at the, at the foot of uh, the foot of the cross and kind of wrestle with them there. To kind of bring them into the very kind of throne room of the King and to kind of unpack your baggage there. To wrestle and grapple and accuse if that's what needs to happen and to cry if that's what needs to happen and get angry if that's what needs to happen. But you do it there. You do it there. And so you see, you get kind of some of these Psalms, particularly in the Psalms of Lament where 
It makes us feel uncomfortable because there's an unfilteredness that seems to be going on. You get Psalms which, like Psalm 39, which kind of concludes, Depart from me, God. Depart from me, God, that I might have a moment's peace before I die. If you're on prayers next week and you pray that from up front here, you're not praying the week after. Like imagine if you came up here and you said, Lord, we just pray that you might depart from us here at GPC, that we might have a moment's peace before we die. And yet it's in there for us to pray. And then you get Psalm 88, right, which ends, Darkness is my only friend. And it's almost confusing because we feel like some of these things we shouldn't say and even some of these things we almost go, it's not even theologically correct. And if you read any of Tim Keller's works on the Psalms, he'll talk about that these Psalms actually were a cause of him almost kind of throwing the Bible away. That it kind of called into question the 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 goodness of scripture for him and he says that was until he read two small sentences in a commentary by Derek Kidner Kidner says this on Psalm 39 and Psalm 88 he says the very presence of these prayers in scripture are a witness to God's understanding. He knows how men speak when they are desperate. He knows how men speak when they are desperate. And we are invited to speak desperately, unfilteredly to God. That it's safe, that these psalms are here to, to show us that it's safe to pour your sorrows out to him. And in fact, it's the only safe place to pour your sorrows out. Because unfortunately, too often what we kind of try and do, and this is my experience this week, right? Lots of emotions, you're writing a sermon on sadness, so I'm spending all this week at home just feeling super mopey. And, and irritable probably. And you know what I wanted to do? Just play a video game. And too often in our society, we try to remedy sorrow with distraction. With a good book, playing a video game, with opening up a bottle, with watching pornography. And we try to remedy sorrow in these other spaces to distract ourselves, scrolling mindlessly through Facebook. Why? So you don't have to deal with kind of the turmoil within. 
And it was this moment this week where I was like, I just want to play a video game and yet I know because I'm, I'm writing this and I'm wrestling with this that actually what am I to do with this kind of, this sorrow that is within me that feels overwhelming? I don't distract myself but bring them into the throne room. To pray my tears, to pray my sorrows, to kind of pour them out there, to speak them to God. To grapple with them before him. And there's nothing wrong with fun. There's nothing wrong with enjoying a good book or a nice wine. But it's not where you'll find lasting relief or hope. I'm a big fan of, um, there's something just impressive about big wave surfing. Like just people that see kind of a, a 30 foot wave and go, I'm going to, I'm going to ride that. But there's something incredibly deadly about it as well, right? Because every liter of water is a kilo. So if you fall off, that is smashing you underwater. But here's what they know about big wave surfing. Here's what they figured out. Most people who die big wave surfing, the deadly part's not actually getting smashed by the wave. The main danger comes... After you've been smashed by the wave that in all the bubbles and being thrown about, that you lose track of where the oxygen is. You're not sure of which way's up. And so what happens is people swim down and they drown. And the danger is the same thing for us in suffering. It's less so about the suffering that's the danger. It's more that we get so turned around that we're not sure where to go for air and we swim down. I remember hearing a story about an old Archbishop of Sydney, the Sydney Anglican Diocese, and he was preaching at a large church in Sydney and he um, had a rough week. He'd kind of been dragged over the coals in, in the papers and he preached that night and it, you know, just didn't preach very good. And so he's kind of feeling pretty just blah. And he went to the car park, sat in his car that night all by himself and just cried. Just sobbed. And he sang to himself, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, they are weak, but he is strong. There's a man who knows where the air is. Because we have a God who knows what it means to cry out in desperation. And this is where, and I'll I'll, I'll end this quickly and we'll conclude here, but 
we find in the scriptures a companion in the darkness because you see Psalm 22 isn't just an invitation for us to speak like this to God. Psalm 22 are the very words of God himself. That he knows what it, how a man speaks when he's desperate because he knows, he remembers what it is like to be desperate himself. That only in Christianity and Christianity alone do we find a God who knows what it means to grieve. Only in the gospel do we find a God who knows what it means to be tossed about by the waves, to be gripped by anguish and misery. We, we find in the gospel a God who knows what it means to be abandoned and alone. That no other God knows what it means for his knees to shake and tremble. Not Allah, not Vishnu, not Buddha. That no other God knows what it means for his chest to ache because of anxiety. Someone once said, the privilege of deity is to rest in comfort and peace, to never experience suffering. That's the privilege of deity. Not our God. We have a God who knows what it means to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That our God knows what it means to suffer with us and to be a companion in suffering because ultimately in suffering you can go without answers what you can't make it with is without a companion you can go without answers but you can't make it through suffering without a companion and in the gospels we find one and so here's what we're going to do You'll have pieces of paper on your seats, under your seats, with you. What I'm wanting you to do in this next moment is to spend some time writing down something that is weighing heavy on your heart. Perhaps it is the loss of a loved one. Perhaps it's the tension within a family, within family or a friendship. Perhaps, like the brothers, it is maybe that you are not the person that you wish you were. Write it on the paper. Bring it before God in prayer. Pray it out to him and fold the paper up and put it in your pocket and sometime this week, here's what I want you to do, sometime this week, take that piece of paper, it might be in your backyard or at the beach or somewhere, and and, and I want you to bury it and spend some time wrestling with God and your grief, praying your tears. Are we going to play music? Is that what we're going to do? We're going to play some music and spend some time reflecting, praying your tears, writing some of those griefs.